Thank you, Tom. There's another question from Zer Schmetterling. This is from the MBT forum. It's a very long question, so I will try to condense it a little bit. He, um, it started with two statements you made. In your normal dreams, you're at your being level. And second one, there is no subconscious. The first one was genius for him. He learned that he's simply not blindly stumbling through his dreams, that they have a purpose. Uh, the second one, there is no sub subconscious, somehow opened a door. Um, he's been making observations of these three states, his normal self, this uh, being level me, and the subconscious. He calls it his three minds, or these three states. Um, since he'd never heard uh, anyone having such an experience as being able to distinguish these three, he started to be afraid of losing his mind. I'd never, I'd never had the experience of being more than one mind, or probably more than realization of just his physical self. And he asked desperately for a break, for some understanding for this. I would really appreciate some advice on what I should do now to overcome this fear of the realization of these three states. And um, and I'm going a little crazy, or is this a normal experience? Well, the same advice about how to get rid of fear that I've given many, many times, that would apply. But in this case, the fear is probably a fear of the unknown. And you're not, you're doing something different that you've not done before. You're being in a way different that you've not experienced before. And there's fear in just being different and new things, the unknown. What's this going to cause? You know, what's going to be the result of it? I don't know. I'm in new territory now and I, I feel insecure because I don't know exactly how this is going to turn out. And then the more you get worried about that, of course, the worse it gets. Fear builds on itself. So you start to have a fear and then that fear creates more fears, which create more fears. And pretty soon you've got a whole, you know, a whole set of fears uh, all around these particular issues. And now you're paralyzed. You don't know what to do. You don't know, you know, if you stop working on it, is that, that seems like a bad idea. But if you continue to work on it, that seems like a bad idea. And now you're kind of stuck in the middle like a deer, right? Caught, you know, in the headlights of a car at night. You know, you're standing there kind of frozen and can't go anywhere because you've got fear pushing you from all directions. Does that sound uh, familiar, Cheryl? <laughs> yeah. So that's what happens. Uh, when you have a, you know, a basic fear like that, like a fear of the unknown. So just, you know, take a deep breath, relax and realize that none of this is going to make you crazy. It's not like when you do something that you, is not common, that that's a terrible thing because you don't know how it's going to end up. Just get, have the courage to make your explorations and deal with whatever happens with whatever happens is not going to be dangerous or it's not going to hurt you the only thing that causes your your uh, your fear is is your lack of trust for the outcome you have no trust in what's going to happen you just have to have courage to overcome that and say all right i'm going to deal with it however it is i'm not such a delicate little flower i'm not such a a, a, a um sensitive thing that if anything if i do anything that nobody's done before that that's going to be terrible i can deal with this i can handle it it's mine if it, if i start to get in you know get into trouble i'll back up for a while think about it and then try again you just need the courage to go do it there's nothing about what you're doing about being at the being level being uh um you know so that you you understand all of your uh your your intellect your being level and all the stuff that you normally hide under the rug, which is what people call their subconscious. To be aware of all of that at the same time, it's not three separate minds. It's just one person integrating three separate areas of themselves. It's all just one. You've blocked it off and defined it into, into separate pigeonholes, but it's really one thing. It's all you, and you should not be afraid of yourself. So screw up your courage. Make some little courage badges like Cheryl does. Put one on and then go to work. It's, uh, um, you know, just 
Courage is the only way, but it's not going to drive you crazy. You're not going to be insane. It's not going to hurt you. Your mind, you can explore it all you like without a negative problem. Thank you. The next question from the MPT forum is on free will. I have a question about free will. You have mentioned that determined systems cannot evolve, or at least that determined systems will always succumb to the second law of thermodynamics. This makes me wonder if you're suggesting that free will is fundamental in the same way that the process of evolution is fundamental. Is free will a third assumption or contained in the assumption of the fundamental process of evolution? Does AUO, that's absolute unbounded oneness, come equipped with both dim awareness and free, free will built in at the beginning? Yeah, free will's built in at the beginning, but it's not with evolution. Free will is a part of consciousness. When I make the assumption that consciousness exists, consciousness cannot exist without free will, without making choices. What a conscious does, it has awareness and then it makes choices. If those choices aren't free, if it has no free will, then it's not actually making choices. There are no choices. With determinism, choices are impossible. So if choices are impossible, then we don't have, you know, we don't really have a what we call consciousness. We may have awareness, but we don't have consciousness. Consciousness requires choice. Okay, if you can't make a choice, you're not conscious. Consciousness is not just simple awareness. It's awareness that makes choices. So free will comes in with consciousness exists. Also, time comes in with consciousness exists because time comes in with choice. There's before the choice and after the choice. Time. If you make a choice, then there was the time before you made the choice, and then later the time after you made the choice. You see, you can't make a choice without time. So time is also a part of that fundamental assumption that consciousness exists. Also, free will uh, uh, choice is important or evolution can't exist. Evolution requires change. You evolve from state A to state B. Well, before I was in A, now I'm in B, that requires time. So evolution can't persist if there is no time. And evolution is also created, particularly conscious evolution is created by choice. You make choices, you evolve according to your choice. So you see the, the evolution, the consciousness, the free will and time are all logically necessary for each other. If you take any of those away, then the other ones, you know, cease to be meaningful. So that's how it comes in. Yes, the free will is a fundamental part that we start that we start with. Consciousness is, it makes choices. Therefore, time must exist and those choices have to be free or they wouldn't be choices. Thank you, Tom. The next question comes from Zach on anesthetic and coma. What happens if you're put under general anesthetic or end up in a coma? I imagine there's more than one possibility. My personal experience is when I had surgery as a child and was under general anesthetic for about three hours, I woke up with no recollection of what had happened. I didn't dream or enter another reality frame. It was just missing time. If a free will awareness unit isn't receiving data stream of any kind, by definition, it's no longer conscious. Does control then fall back to the IULC? Well, I'm not sure control of what. Um, you know, the, you still have the rule set there, even though you are no longer getting any data. You have a rule set, so the rule set keeps your heart beating and your and your breath going in and out, your muscles contracting. All of that's according to the biology. So biology works regardless. Uh, it's that's just part of the rule set. So as your consciousness, uh, as you lose consciousness, your free will awareness unit is no longer getting any data. So it doesn't have a reality. It's not in an out of body. It's not in a dream. It's nowhere. So it means it's not receiving any data. Okay. Now there's really nothing for it to keep track of. The rule set's just chugging along with the body. It's not getting any data to define what reality's like. 
and everything present trends just continue see whatever happens it's it's not there's no longer you are not any longer making choices so <clears throat> with no choices you're not applying your conscious so that's what happens um trying to think of something i i uh, saw yesterday that, that talks to this um memory when you when a when a uh, free will awareness unit loses memory okay, when it forgets let's say you you have a head injury and you can't remember who you are or you can't remember where you were or you can't remember anything that uh, you did okay you did things you know that because here you are suddenly standing by the side of the road and that's your reality but you don't remember how you got there and maybe those memories never come back okay so where did the memories go did somehow they get uh, erased out of your free will awareness unit well if your if your constraints change because of your injury to eliminate those memories because of the brain damage then those constraints change and yes the free will awareness unit no longer has those memories because it only can interact in as much as the avatar you know will will allow so the avatar doesn't have those memories because that you know that doesn't work anymore but the iuoc still has a record of all those things that happened your history's still there all that data is there so it's not like it just disappears when the avatar gets hit on the head the memory is retained in the system it's retained in the past database your ioc knows you know all those things that happen the free will awareness unit though doesn't any longer have access to that information because the the um, damage that it caused to the avatar changed the constraints and took that information away so you see the consciousness can only do and operate and remember and function with what the avatar's system with what that avatar can do remember or be whatever according to the rule set so the things that the consciousness can do all have to be supported by the rule set in some way see so if the avatar you know if the consciousness says avatar jump in the air the avatar is only going to jump so high because of the rule set the avatar won't jump 20 feet in the air probably jump more than an inch that's because of the body the amount of exercise the strength of the muscles the training all of that all that stuff will determine how high that avatar will jump when the consciousness gives the command to jump see so the consciousness can only work with what the avatar brings to the table and if it loses part of the biology that is a reference to memory then it can't remember it doesn't have that in its database anymore so that's kind of how the the brain and the memory and the avatar versus the consciousness work. All right, Tom, thank you for that. The next question from the MBT forum. In an interview you had a few years ago, you mentioned how you did strength training five days a week and how important that is for keeping muscles alive. Then you went through your diet, basically veggie smoothies, a hint of fruit and bean soup. Is it your personal preference or would you generally recommend this kind, kind of diet? He asks this because um, it seems we've evolved teeth, and particularly canines, for nothing. With a smile. He's <laughs> well, we don't have very big canines. We've got little, uh, little tiny canines that uh, are maybe a vestige of an earlier time. If you look at uh, chimpanzees, they have much more developed canines than we do. Ours are uh, much smaller. Theirs are much more pronounced. Um, and if you look at other uh, monkeys, you'll find that uh, some of those have canines that would rival, uh, you know, other other uh, animals in their in their long uh, tearing teeth that are on either side, top and bottom. So anyway, we don't uh, we don't use our canines a whole lot. But do I recommend that diet for everyone? I don't recommend anything for everyone. I don't really recommend that people should live their life in any particular way. You need to live your life however way that suits you, the way that makes sense to you and the way that you feel is right, moral, 
you know, doing the right thing, low entropy, however you want to put it. That's your responsibility to do that. Is not you shouldn't do that because you're following what somebody else does. You shouldn't do that because um, you know somebody tells you that it's a good thing to do. You need to understand all those issues, and when you're done with your education and understanding them, you need to make choices. Then you live with those choices, and the choices have consequences. It's just as simple as that. So, you know, if you you know, eat a lot of sweet stuff. If you eat a lot of sugar, then there's consequences for that. Um, you know, if you eat a lot of oil or fat or you don't ever eat any fat or whatever it is you eat, there are consequences. If you like the consequences, then keep doing it. If you don't like the consequences, then do something else. So it's just that simple. But no, I don't re recommend that anybody do anything in particular. Everybody needs to make their own free will choice about what they do and why they do it. And then everybody has to deal with the consequences, good or bad, of that that uh, action. And then everybody should, but most people don't, you need to assess those consequences and decide whether you want to keep doing it or change doing it. Is it working for you? Is it good or not so good? And then make changes as needed. That's the way life is. As soon as you do something because somebody else does or because somebody else told you to, you're giving up your free will and you're doing something not because it's your choice, because it's somebody else's choice. And your choice is just to follow, not to make the choice. Well, that is a choice, I guess, to follow, but it's a choice that takes you out of your ability to grow up. You're no longer making choices directly other than the one, which is to follow somebody else. So it's not a good choice to make. Thank you. I suspect your uh, recommendation philosophy would also apply to this next question, which asks, if a person had cancer with a poor prognostic, would you say it is a high entropy choice to avoid modern medical treatment involving more or less being butchered or having to sell his house or get into a lot of debt to pay for medication all for prolonging life, one to two years maybe, but with a poor quality of life? Or would the low entropy choice be to exit this experience packet with dignity? Yeah, that depends on the individual and how that individual finds dignity and what they want to do and how they react, how much fear they have. You know, I get this, I ask this a lot. Somebody says, well, um, I found a, you know, I found a lump and um, it's cancer, but I don't want to go through the chemo and I don't want to go through the radiation because those I know are not all that effective and they make you feel sick and lose your hair and all these other things. I don't want to go through that. So, and I, I think the, my, my intellect tells me that the, uh, natural things, you know, I'll cut out sugars. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll take my vitamins, you know, I'll, I'll do these various regiments and, and so on, and that will be good enough. Is, do you agree with that? And I don't always agree with that. It depends on the individual. What I tell them is if you are frightened, if you are afraid that if you don't do what the doctor says, that it's going to have a disastrous result. If there's some part of you that says, if I walk away from radiation and chemo and other things, Am I going to have this little fear nagging inside my head that says, uh-oh, you screwed up. You needed to do that stuff because nothing else works. They're the doctors. They know what works best. And if they tell you that's what you need to do and you don't do it, you're going to end up regretting it and it'll be too late. See, if that's a fear you have, then you need to go take the chemo and whatever because that fear will kill you just as much as the cancer does. That's a fear that you're going to get cancer and it's going to be awful. And if that's the fear you have in your head all the time you're doing the alternative therapies, the alternative therapies are likely not to work for you because you've got this fear that you're gonna die of cancer. You're putting that energy into that outcome with your fear, you see? So it, you can't just make a one size fits all choice. Sure, use the alternative stuff, you know, that chemo, you know, the, the statistics say that, that chemo doesn't even lengthen your life. People that take chemo versus people that don't, you know, the people that don't actually do better. 
you know, some statistics show that. So why would you want to take chemo? It'll just shorten your life. Well, that's fine. But if you fear that that's a wrong decision, it may be the wrong decision because your fear is a more important and a more potent contributor to whether you get well or whether you don't than anything else, you see? So you need to work with your fear and you need to work with, with uh, your attitude. Now, if you're one of these people that says, all right, I'm just going to beat this thing. And you don't have any little niggling fear in the back of your mind that it's not going to work out. You just know that you're going to, what, stop eating carbohydrates and starve those little cancer cells. And it's just going to work. And that gives you a positive attitude. And that positive attitude is 100%. No little fears hanging in the background. Well, then that alternative method may indeed work for you. May be a lot more powerful than the medicine that the doctor would give you because that little little uh, uh, idea of say not eating carbohydrates and starving your cancer, that will help you put a lot of positive energy into your getting better. See, so you have to see it holistically. Some people, it's better to do the alternative therapy and they have a higher probability of getting well that way. For others, that won't work so well because they're going to have fear that's going to defeat that purpose. So it depends on you, how you feel and what you think. That's why I don't make recommendations for anybody about anything because you have to make them for yourself. You know yourself. Be honest with yourself. And if you're just going, if you're just going alternative route, because that's what all your friends tell you you ought to do, but it scares you half to death to do that, probably not a good idea to do that because being scared half to death is going to be a bigger effect on the outcome than what you do or the therapy you choose. So you see, you can't just make that blanket statement. Yeah, for some people, it'd be much smarter to skip the the chemo, have a higher quality of life, don't get sick, your hair doesn't fall out, everything's better. And, you know, the statistics say you'll probably live as long as you would anyway, even if you did that other stuff. But that's just statistics. Statistics only apply to groups of people. Statistics don't apply to individuals, just to groups. So you have to make your own choice and your own decision based on who you are, how you feel. It's not a a thing that you can say, well, here's, here's what will happen if I do this and there's what will happen or won't. Well, not necessarily. You have a very strong influence on what happens, how you think, how you feel, the amount of fear you have or don't have, how convinced you are, you know, how much uh, effort are you going to put into actually not eating those carbohydrates or you're just going to not eat carbohydrates for a week or two and then, well, you know, it's that stuff you really like. So, I'll just have a little carbohydrates and it'll be okay. And now you have another fear that says you messed this one up too. So you got extra fears. So make your own mind up based on how you feel and uh, make your own choice. Then it's your own consequences. Learn from them. Thank you, Tom. I think your advice has always been an individual should make their own choice. And I know you've never uh, advocated any kind of... Um, medical advice like that. So we move on to the next question from an MBT forum. And this is from Costas. Um, and let me see if I can do justice to his question. For some time now, I struggle to understand this. The astronomer looks for the first time at that spot in the sky and draws his answer from the probability distribution. After that, his view is recorded to everyone's reality, together with all the supernovas, nebulas, and things like that. So before the conscious, conscious observer observed, there was nothing on the sky or in the universe. At the time of the dinosaurs, there were no humans around to observe the heavens, so there were no galaxies, black holes, stars, stars, and things like that. And you might say before the dinosaurs and all the way back to the digital Big Bang, there was nothing up there either because there were no humans around to observe all those things. How did we end up with this observable universe? How did this stuff evolve um, if there was nothing there to evolve? Okay, well, this is a chicken and an egg 
question and it's easily solved in that you start with a simulation, right? The big, you know, the bang, the big digital bang. So we start with the simulation and the simulation just works out according to a rule set. Okay? And so that goes on working out according to the rule set until things happen where there are choices to be made until you have say life. Well, in the beginning, the computer, the larger consciousness system, or the big computer, if you will, makes all those choices. The computer plays all the parts. Okay? And it doesn't just have to be humans. You know, it can be uh, uh, any, kind of, any kind of awareness. The conscious, the system will play all the parts and make all the choices. Now, how it does that, it may do it randomly. It may say, here's a set of reasonable choices and pick those. It may do things that have, it may only pick the highest probability and not just randomly pick from it. Well, the computer can do whatever it, it wants to how it wants to play that game. So it plays all the, all the uh, choice making uh, events and all the randomness, randomness in that first part of the universe uh, exploding and how it worked. There's a lot of randomness in that. It just depends on, you know, that explosion. How even was it? Did it all come out exactly as a sphere or was some parts of it more energetic than others? And you got all sorts of things where choices are made. And a lot of that's just randomness, okay? Random draws from according to the possibilities. So that's the way it works. So then we get, uh, you know, clams and, and um, amoebas and fish and reptiles and, then you get, um, after reptiles, we'll get mammals and eventually you end up getting us. And all along the way, if there's one of these things that evolved from the rule set that we call our biology that made interesting choices, the system could then allow some IUOC to play that particular thing as an avatar. So let's say it gets up to the point where you have, you have, um, mammals and you got things like dogs and cats uh, then if there's some iuoc that wants to play the choices that a dog or a cat has then it could log on and make those choices for that avatar and so on up to we get the people okay once we had people we had a lot of interesting ethical and moral choices it's these moral choices that really differentiate between high entropy and low entropy so these are learning choices the kind of choices you can grow up by making. So when we got to something that made those kinds of choices, then entities were encouraged to log on to play those avatars. They probably logged on to play dolphins too, and, and whales, and they probably logged on to play dogs and cats and bumblebees. But consciousness comes in all different sizes and shapes and abilities. Consciousness that was had the ability to play a human or a chimpanzee, you know, or a dog, may be a different kind of IUOC. So when we finally got to the people, then they logged on as people, and then the system would give those choices for that avatar over to that IUOC, or free will awareness unit, you see? So that's how it came to be the way it is. Now, it's not like, you know, the stars were there or the, you know, those nebulae or anything that they were there or not there. They're never there. They don't exist. They're just virtual things. They only exist in somebody's data stream when, when somebody looks at them. If somebody requires that data, then they're computed. When nobody requires that data, they're not computed. So it's not like things exist and then stop existing. Nothing exists as physical stuff. It's all data information stream sent to a consciousness if it's not being sent in anybody's consciousness then there's no reason for the computer to compute it because it's just the virtual reality for you know consciousness okay so the things like rocks or maybe um you know, amoebas maybe they don't make choices with that are conscious maybe they just make algorithmic choices determine choices based on their their central nervous system and their dna or whatever it's all like like uh code they don't really make free will choices well in that case the system just plays those according to the rule set 
So that's the way it comes about. It's not like, how did anything happen because we didn't have an observer? We had the one observer that counted most, and that was the larger consciousness system. And it could make all the choices until an avatar started making choices. And then after a while, after probably a few thousand years or so, probably all the all the uh, avatars that were interesting in the, in the amount and the type of choices that they made were logged on by IUOCs and free will awareness units. So that's probably the way it is now. You probably don't have a lot of NPCs, non-player characters. In other words, characters that the computer is playing itself. We only have NPCs when it's kind of you need a, a cameo role needs to be played for a for a temporary amount of time. But um, that doesn't mean there aren't any NPCs. You know, it's possible that uh, there might be one or two, but there's not much point. There's plenty of IUOCs that would like to take that on. So the system wants IUOCs to take that on. That's the whole point of the simulation. So there's no point for the system not to let them do that if there's one that wanted to. So um, that's how that works. So there's really not a logical issue there at all. All right, Tom, thank you. The next question from the MBT forum is on mental illness, something we've touched on a little bit earlier. I always wondered if we can scan healing, I mean, mental illnesses, as we do with cancer or sickness, for example. I think the future would be very positive in assisting people with these issues, and perhaps we can diagnose them with our consciousness instead of trying to medicate or institutionalize all those people. As one-fifth of our civilization has at least struggled with one or more such mental illnesses. And one-fifth is only the people that at one time came forward. We don't even include the ones who never speak about it. Most likely they may not understand it or um, for some other, other reason not bring it forward. Okay, well, sure. I agree with most of that. Um, you know, we should do a lot better with mental illness. You know, we, we've come a long way, baby, in the sense that we used to warehouse them, uh, keep them locked up in closets, you know, in a house someplace so they didn't embarrass us, you know, that sort of thing. We used to have even a worse attitude before than we have now, but our attitude now is still pretty bad. Um, we lock people away because they're different than us. That's not a good reason for locking people away. It's just because they're different from us. We need to understand that those differences have value as well. And not being like us shouldn't be the, the decision point of whether somebody needs to be uh, uh, medicated to oblivion. So in any case, yes, we, we uh, don't know what to do with the mentally ill, so we, we give them drugs and warehouse them. That's very unfortunate. Maybe uh, decades from now we'll have a better, more more loving attitude toward these people but uh, we don't and people who are mentally who are called mentally ill may not be mentally ill at all they may just have a an open connection to the larger system and uh, and maybe in other other times other places they would have been revered as uh, you know a holy man or something because they had a direct communication with the something you know, see? and now they're just given drugs and locked up so there is, um, it's unfortunate the way we treat our mentally ill. And yes, you can scan for mental illness, but it doesn't, what you get isn't as um, understandable as when you scan for physical things. When you scan for physical things, you know physiology, you know how many bones people have, you know all the ligaments and all the muscles and all the tendons and all the things in there in our physical body we even know all the pieces of the brain and we can scan for things that show up on this physical map but if the illness is truly inside the consciousness like fear fear we can call a mental illness if you like fear is a mental illness and if it's just inside the consciousness you're only going to get that to show up in a scan like a uh, you know kind of a black halo or darkness around the head something like that that's very non-specific so it will give you a very non-specific answer. Um, perhaps if you wanted to work on a symbology for very specific mental illnesses, give those an output format to the system and ask, you know, 
that they were, you know, this illness will, will present itself that way in pictures. If you wanted to make something up like that, then you could, and then you would get something that specific, but still you have to know about it first. It's not like it's going to tell you something you don't know. You're coming up with the output format, so you're limited to things that you can come up with, not the necessarily things that are there. So that's the downside. But yes, we could do that. To give it a remember, we can get data on anything, and we have to specify the output format. So if we were clever and specify an output format, we may get things more specific about mental illnesses. Otherwise, um, if we're not that specific, we're just going to get, you know, dark clouds around your head or something very nonspecific. Thank you. Tom, are these issues um, restricted to our virtual reality? Are there other virtual realities that struggle with these types of issues under the same constraints that we are, that we yeah, have? Well, well, if we call fear mental illness, in that it's a suboptimal state of awareness, right? Of of mind, mind with fear is a is a problem. So given that fear is a mental illness, then mental illness is everywhere. <laughs> mental illness is in everybody. You see, if we want to do that, then then most everybody that walks the earth, and most critters, and most everybody in non physical as well, you see, has mental illness issues, have fear issues. That's just part of conscious. That's an illness that's, that fear is an illness that is uh, native to consciousness. It's not an illness of the body, an illness of the consciousness. So we have that, and that of course creates a lot of other things. That, that fear creates a lot of physical ailments. It creates you know, back pain and lots of other things, uh, other kinds of illnesses and physical things, the lower serotonin and all the rest of that gets gets uh, com gets computed or gets created by the fear. So fear is kind of the fundamental thing. But you, besides that, you can also have just dysfunctional biochemistry because of, of uh, random chance of how the biology works. Remember, this rule set has some randomness in it. Everything doesn't always go together the way it's designed. Sometimes people are born with, you know, one arm or no legs or something. Sometimes they're Siamese twins. There's all kinds of things can can come out of a, of the the birthing and growing process as part of the biological rule set. There's a lot of randomness in there, lots of variables. So depending on those random draws and how the variables work, then sometimes out under the five sigma or out under the tail of the curve, you get something very exceptional happening. So that is just the way it works. And if that happens, that exceptional thing happening means that you are exceptionally brilliant or that exceptional thing happening means that you're mentally retarded. Or if it means that you have bad brain chemistry and you have anger problems, you go off into fits or you have epilepsy or something else. These are all things under the tails of the curve that can happen to people according to the rule set. Okay? Now it's not a failure or a, a, an illness of consciousness. It's just, and, you know, kind of a, a problem of biology, if you will. One of those things that's possible, so it happens occasionally. In which case, it's something for you to deal with. And can you modify it with your intent? Yes, you can overcome these things. Mind leads, body follows. So you can overcome these kinds of issues. You can do the best you can with them. You may not overcome being born with no legs in the sense that you may not run races, but you can overcome the effects. You can still live a full, meaningful, interesting life in which you learn a great deal and lose a lot of fear and grow up. So you can still be effective even with these strange things. But if it makes you say that you have bad brain chemistry, now you're schizophrenic because of it, then that's something you have to deal with. And so does everybody else that you know around you. Everybody needs to deal with that. And hopefully everybody will deal with it in a way that makes them grow. And not with fear and not with ego and not with belief. So everything is educational. Thank you. The next question comes from the MBT forum. And it has to do with the LCS and energy. And he's speaking in terms of um, energy as 
densities or concentrations like that. What powers the LCS? Is it a kind of energy? And if so, what is that energy and where does it come from? He has had some experience in magical systems where he works with various energies. In your experience, are there different densities or types of energies in the non-physical? Energy is a metaphor. Energy doesn't really exist. It's a metaphor we use to be the thing that makes something happen. See, now, I will say that uh, when you're healing somebody, you know, I'll say, well, you need to focus energy on that tumor and get rid of it. Energy is a metaphor. What you're focusing on that tumor is an intent. Intent is the motive force. Intent is what makes things change. So intent is the thing behind the metaphor of energy. Okay. Now, in a virtual reality, we have a rule set, and that rule set defines energy, things that can make things happen. You know, you uh, drop a rock and there's gravitational energy, so the rock gains uh, velocity, gains energy as it falls so that it can, you know, lands on your toe, it will cause damage because of the energy that it has in it. That's according to the rule set. Okay, now all of that is also in equations. It's all being computed. It's a virtual rock and a virtual toe. Again, energy is information. Okay, in that sense, in a virtual reality, the energy is information. So what, uh, you know, how do we, we, we modify things here physically with our intent. So in, inside of consciousness, intent is which I guess you would call energy. Intent is what makes things happen. It's what changes things. Just intention. And that's the nature of consciousness. So what sort of energy does consciousness run on? It runs on intent. Now, how does it do that? You know, does it burn intent, you know, and make a fire and boil water and then blow it past a, a wheel that spins things like we do, make steam engine? No, you know, it's not a physical thing. To us, it's non-physical. And we don't know what intent does or how it changes things. It just does, and it's unknown to us because we are consciousness, and it's very hard for us to look at consciousness objectively, see how it works, because we're a part of it. So in any case, um, I guess the answer to the question is be aware that energy is a metaphor. Energy in a virtual reality is computed. It's information. Information according to a rule set. So you light a stick of dynamite and a certain amount of energy is going to be released because of the fast burning of the gunpowder and uh, that sort of thing. And that'll be heat, that'll be light, it'll be sound. All of those different effects are all computed. Okay? So it's sound energy, light energy, all of that's computed according to the rule set. So the energy is really information in this reality. In consciousness, it's intent. So intent and is what guides your um, the energy, so to speak, in the non-physical, because he's asking about what sorts of things you have to be aware of in the non-physical in order to operate there safely. Yeah. Your intent is the main thing your fear, but that fear then informs your intent. Just like fear will inform your decisions and your choices, it also you know, informs your intent. So the thing to look for is a fearful intent. If you come with a fearful intent, you're liable to find fearful experiences there. So you deal with things with an intent and to make that intent not fearful, then you need to get rid of your fear. So when you get rid of your fear, then there's nothing out there that's going to hurt you. If you have fear, you'll find with all kinds of things out there that look like, at least, they seem like they're going to hurt you. But of course, the only way they really hurt you is by making you fear more fearful. And you actually do that to yourself. They don't do that. So intention is the key. It's in our intent that we can modify future probability with our intent. So intent's the thing. Fear, fear informs intent. Love informs intent. So if your intents are informed by love, then things work out very well. If they're informed by fear, then your intents create problems for you. But it's the intention that is the creator within consciousness. 
Thank you. I think that answers his question. Uh, the next question is from John McKay. Could you please expand on your views of pop culture? Do you feel that the public is being manipulated, and would you advise that people turn off and become separate in order to grow more? Well, of course the people are being manipulated. Everybody's being manipulated. Uh, manipulation just means people are trying to get you to do what they want you to do. Well, everybody who advertises something for sale is trying to manipulate you, trying to write that description of their item and how wonderful it is in a way to get you to go buy it. Um, you know, politicians want to manipulate you to vote for them. I mean, your spouse is probably trying to manipulate you, you know, to get you to be more the way he or she wants you to be. You know, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your children are trying to manipulate you to get you to do what they'd like you to do. You're trying to manipulate your children to get them to do what you'd like them to do. So manipulation is like everywhere. Everyone's trying to manipulate everybody else to try to get what they want. Okay, And that is what we live in. But yes, now you're talking about specific manipulation uh, that comes, say, on the Internet or on TV or on the radio or from mass media sort of thing. Of course. The, the news people these days aren't so much reporting the news as they're trying to form an opinion in your mind. Some are reporting news, but they can't help but report it in such a way that tells you what their opinions are. See, they have opinions, so they they construct, they, tr they uh, interpret reality to be in a certain way. And to them, that's the way reality is, and that's what they tell you. Well, that's their interpretation. See, that's not necessarily the way it is. It's their reality, the way they see it. So everything is basically uh, individual. We all have individual ways of looking at things. And if we are trying to get people to do something, like vote for us or buy our product, then we try to figure out the best way to manipulate them to do that. So can you turn yourself off from a lot of that? Sure. You don't have to jump every time you don't have to go buy something every time somebody tells you you know this is the best thing you know take this pill you'll live 10 years longer you know take this pill your hair will get thick again take this pill you'll lose 20 pounds take this pill it'll make you sexy you know take this pill and it'll solve all your problems well you don't have to do that what you have to do is get rid of your fear and then you know, that'll solve all your problems you won't need the pill so yes you can Turn it off. You can say all the news is negative and I just, there's not a lot there that I need to know. It's just, you know, me just soaking up all the negative news all over the world. There's not a lot of value in that. So turn it off if that bothers you, if that upsets you. It kind of makes you angry and makes you tense, makes you feel insecure because you're seeing all that ugly stuff all the time, makes you feel like you live in an ugly world. Well. Flip the switch, turn it off. You don't have to be a voyeur to all that ugliness. You know, it's good to be aware of the own, your own ugliness, what you generate in the world around you. Now that's something you should pay attention to. You don't need to pay a lot of attention to everybody else's ugliness. Look at your own. So yes, unplug and drop out to what extent you can from negativity from ugliness, from, from that sort of thing. But you can't turn off and drop out from life. This is where the rubber meets the road, is in our dealing with people. Okay? Mostly it's the people close to you that will trigger your buttons more than anybody else. But to go, you could go live in a deep woods where nobody else ever would go and live by yourself and you know eat leaves and grass and do whatever you want to do off by yourself. And that would be okay, but you won't grow up as fast because you don't have as many challenges. You kind of eliminated a lot of the challenges in life. And you might think you've grown up a lot, but probably not grown up as much as you think because dealing with stuff is how we grow up, right? Stuff happens, we get to deal with it. When you live in the woods by yourself, stuff still happens, but it doesn't challenge you so much. 
the challenges are pretty simple there. It's you and survival. That's basically your challenge. Not like being married or having a, a, a significant other. Now there are some challenges that take a lot more work than just survival, you see. Now you have to, uh, to uh, worry about your fear and your ego and your beliefs. Whereas all that fear, ego and belief stuff doesn't bother you too much in the woods. So I'd say you got to plug in, engage, be a part of the world. Even if it's an ugly world, be a part of it, engage it. But you don't have to just sit around and stare at all the ugliness that's happened everywhere in the planet every night. That's not particularly useful, you see. So engage with the world around you, yes. Become obsessed with, you know, every drop of evil anywhere in the planet. Or even, I guess, if you're into ETs off the planet, you know, evil, evil everywhere. That just makes you tense. It makes you uh, unhappy. It makes you frightened. You start developing more and more fears. And pretty soon you are de-evolving, not evolving. So let all of that go as much as you can. I find my, my rule of thumb about news is that if the news is important enough to get through to, you know, the one or two minutes of it that I might get, um, you know, as I browse through my, my internet, then fine. If it's big enough, I'll hear other people talking about it and I'll go look. But if it's not that big, then I really don't need to know. So for the most part, I keep up with some things, but I don't keep up with the details. I keep up at a very high level of what's happening and what's important in the world, but not the gory details. I let that go. I understand there are gory details there, but I don't need to wallow around in them. I don't find it useful. But that's just me. Don't do that because that's what I do. You know, that's the wrong reason. Do whatever you think is right for you. But uh, sure, we can. We don't have to jump every time somebody grabs our chain and pulls on it. We can. Uh, we can resist that. That's part of growing up, being able to differentiate what's important from what's not. All right, Tom. Thank you. The next question is from Sharma from the MBT forum, and basically, what she's asking is, the animals that are bred for food. Um, and being killed, is their consciousness, is their collective consciousness aware that they are, that this is their ex only experience in life, uh, that they are just, you know, you, you think of the animals, the way they're kept, uh, chickens or things like that, the way they're inhumanely caged and, and kept for food. Um, are they aware that this is their only experience? Well, it's it's not their only experience, obviously. They have an experience. You know, those cows go walking around in the field and eat grass and moo at each other and have a good time for a while. So they do have positive experiences unless they're just put in a feedlot from the very beginning and, uh, you know, have a chemical shot into them and food stuff stuffed in them that isn't good. So then their life maybe isn't very, uh, very happy or very fulfilling. It depends on whether they're organic or whether they're in a factory farm or whether they're on a family farm someplace. So it, it changes a whole lot. So are they aware of their, of their, uh, of why they're being kept and, uh, that their end is to end up on somebody's table, that they are going to be killed, uh, before they would die of old age so that people can eat their body? They're probably not aware of that intellectually. That they know that uh, when they get close to that, when they're in the pens near that place where the killing goes on, they probably do get that then. They probably are aware of it before the end actually happens. They're probably terrified and know something awful is about to happen because they pick that up from each other, from uh, other, other ones that were experiencing it. How much they have that in their collective conscious. They probably do some, but I doubt that they think about it much because most animals just aren't that intellectual. They don't really think about the big picture in life and what's in store for them and that sort of thing. Mostly they just exist from day to day 
they do have some future and some past, but it tends to be, you know, not too extensive and they don't worry a lot about things like that. So most critters don't uh, get neurotic because of worry. Uh, some do, you know, depends, but most of those are the ones that we've taught that because we keep them with us and they feel our fear and our neurosis. But for the most part, they're not too aware of it. If they were, they don't they don't dwell on it. They don't sit around and uh, feel sorry for themselves because they're going to be meat on somebody's plate. They pretty much just live their lives as they come, make choices as they can. And then uh, they end up getting uh, slaughtered for meat. It's probably pretty horrible right toward the end when they are aware of what's going on. But that probably is short. So I don't think they're suffering under um, a lot of stress because they know what's inevitable in their life. They're pretty stress-free if we let them do what they do naturally, like wander around in fields and eat grass. If, they, if we just let them do that, they wouldn't have a lot of stress. They're only stressed because we force them to do things that are unnatural for them, like keep them in little tiny pens and don't let them walk around. Those kinds of things cause stress. Not, not having a natural life. And yes, they're, they're aware that life is not fun, no doubt. And that's the way it is. So yeah, the, the critters are aware mostly of the present moment and only slightly in front and back, future and past. I don't think that's a particular problem that they, they sit around, uh, you know, stressed out about the fact that they're gonna be meat. All right, Tom, thank you. The next question from Lucky uh, is the similarities between dying and having an out-of-body experience. Is dying similar to having an out-of-body experience? I'm asking this question because both my mother and sister have a very real fear of death. Uh, my mother is always interested in what happens after death and what happens when, when one is dying. Yeah, Although that's I very, it's, yeah, okay. yeah, it's very similar. <clears throat> very similar between the two. There's a lot of similarities. Of course, there's a big difference too. And that is if you're out of body, you come back and, uh, you know, your body gets up and walks off and does something else. So there's that difference. But as far as the experience itself, it's similar. You kind of become aware that you're in another reality and then you go with it. You go with that, whatever that reality is, you know, you start to explore it and, and, uh, you connect with it and connect with who's there and what they're doing. And it's just waking up in another reality. So that's kind of what it's like, except now if you die, you wake up in the transition reality. The transition reality is a virtual reality that's there to help people make the transition between having an avatar and not having an avatar anymore. And then planning for the next avatar. So out of body, you don't go into the transition reality, but you go into a reality where you make choices as well. So yeah, it's pretty similar. That's why people who do a lot of out of body generally have very little fear of death because they know that uh, they're more than their body and that they are consciousness and awareness and that they are independent. Well, I shouldn't say independent, but they're a superset. <coughs> they're more fundamental. So yes, very similar experiences in many ways. All right, thank you. Our next question from the MBT forum is the limitations caused by the physical body. I have a question on how much the human body limits consciousness and our IUOC's potential. From what I understand, this reality puts constraints on our consciousness in the form of this physical body, the brain. A cat, for example, has more constraints on its conscious ability than than we do. A brain has less processing capacity. If, so if the same IUOC was put into a cat and a human, it would have more consciousness or ability to access its potential in the human than in the cat. Right. It's a matter of decision space. So as a human, you have a very large decision space. You have lots and lots of choices you can make. If you're a dolphin, uh, you know, dolphin, not the fish, but uh, the porpoise, the the, uh, the um, mammal, it's, uh, it's a different set 
of experiences, but you still have a lot of choices to make. As a cat or a dog, you have a lot fewer choices. As a bumblebee, you have even less choices. So as you go up or down the, the, the uh, scale of, of decision space, then you have different kinds of consciousness of different capacities that would want to be an IU or want to be a free will awareness unit for so the various things. So you may have a, you know, a, a uh, an IUOC that is uh, very um, limited and, you know, Bumblebee may be just right. Or maybe you have an IUOC that would be a consciousness for a whole hive of honeybees or ants, something that kind of demonstrates more of a group, a group mind sort of thing. Um, so that depends. Or if you're like uh, us, then you uh, you would log on to an avatar that's a human because of their decision space is something that helps you grow up, challenges you. Well, if you log on to a cat, then maybe that challenges you too. You're at a level where the cat's choices challenge you. So there's different kinds of IUOCs and uh, you log on to different sorts of of capacities of decision space. The thing about decision space that's interesting is as you evolve, as you get rid of fear, your, your decision space grows. Your reality gets bigger. The size of your decision space is the size of your reality. If you live in a little tiny reality, you have a very small decision space. If you are very depressed, you're really seriously depressed, you have a very small decision space and a very small reality that you live in. If you're very depressed, the only thing in your reality is your pain. And that's about it. You're so aware of your pain and your misery and your failure and whatever else, and all the rest of the world is just kind of grouped up into other, other that's really not important. So, your reality size is your decision space size. If you're very evolved, then your your decision space is very large, and it incorporates it incorporates things that are non-physical as well as physical. So you live in the non-physical and the physical simultaneously. You have a much bigger decision space. 